Turn in your Bibles, if you would, then, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now, I am not preaching a political sermon tonight. The introduction that I'm going to read to you, because I wanted to make sure that I did not misspeak, and I spoke exactly what I believe the Lord wanted me to say. Some of it is a quote from our president, but this is not a political sermon. You're going to see by the end of the introduction why I'm even talking about this. But I do want to bring your attention. In a speech on September the 1st of this year, President Joe Biden said from Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, that here, quote, the United States Constitution was written and debated. This is where we set in motion the most extraordinary experiment of self-government the world has ever known. And this is true. Creating a society based on equality and democracy. But then warned that, quote, equality and democracy are under assault. And that, quote, Donald Trump and the MAGA Repu uh, Republicans, that is, make America great again, MAGA Republicans, represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. He continued, not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. I know because I've been able to work with these mainstream Republicans. He then said, MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution. They do not believe in the rule of law. MAGA forces are determined to take this country backwards. Now listen closely. Backwards to an America where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, no right to marry who you want. So who are these extremists who threaten the very foundations, apparently, of our republic? The first two, those who threaten the right to choose and the right to privacy, are decidedly referring to anti-abortionists, that is, pro-lifers. The third, that is, the right to contraception, is just our president's interpretation of the Supreme Court's decision recently against abortion. And the fourth, that is, the right to marry who you love, is the, are those who desire to, to see gay marriage outlawed. If so, if you are a pro-lifer or pro-family, then you apparently are a MAGA Republican and, and I emphasize, an extremist. If on these terms you cannot compromise with our president, you apparently are an extremist. If you believe there was voter fraud in the last election, apparently you are an extremist. Now he concluded, MAGA Republicans, uh, excuse me, I'm trying, uh, fan the flames of political violence that are a threat to our personal rights, to the pursuit of justice, to the rule of law, to the very soul of this country. Now let me just add on to this. Just recently, this was in the news. On the wake of this visceral speech against so-called Republican extremists who are pro-life and pro-family, a 41-year-old liberal Democrat had a political verbal altercation with an 18-year-old, quote, this is his quote, Republican extremist, and afterward climbed into his own car and ran the 18-year-old over, killing him. He is now on bail 
of only $50,000. Why? He said because he needed to work to support his family. All I have to say is I do hope that he does not drive a car to get there. He said he needed to do this because the 18-year-old had called someone during their altercation to take care of him. This is his quote even though they found out later that he was drunk, so he feared for his life. Incidentally, that coincided with the exact time his mother said that he had called her. Let me just say that the tide of violence in America indeed is rising, but the attacks are rarely coming from the right, but are from the radical left, and may I add, truly desires to silence not just the political voices in America that are contrary to their desires, but the voice that is against and seeks to desire, that seeks to silence the voice of Christians who apparently are extremists. So let me go on record then, according to the leftists definition, I am an extremist. You, my friends, most of you, all of you that I know, are extremists. So here's my question. In the wave of either verbal or physical attacks against our stance on the word of God, the gospel, Christianity itself, what should our response be? Now, I'm not looking at what do we say, but tonight I'm looking at how we say it. Certainly we don't drive a car and run someone over that is against us to kill them. The violence that apparently MAGA Republicans are swirling up I personally don't see much of, but I certainly see the visceral attacks from the left. And let me just say, when I say the left, I don't just mean political left, but I'm talking about those who speak against Christianity and speak against the ideals that Jesus himself stood for. So let me be clear that we live in a day in which not just the political, but the religious verbal assault against Christianity is only increasing. You, my friends, are labeled by our president as an extremist. If you disagree with him, you are an extremist. The extremists, he said, are only those that were not willing to talk with him, specifically concerning abortion, gay marriage, and voter fraud. So, how then do we engage with those around us that are opposing us, that speak against truth, that hold beliefs? Remember last week we talked about godless chatter. Now that's the NIV translation. Literally, it is, I'm sorry, literally it is worldly empty talk worldly empty talk. What the world has to say and its view, its perspective on what they believe is truth. Now according to what the world has to say, it is directly opposed to much of what the Bible teaches. How do we engage with these types of people? They've always been there, of course. They oppose us. They speak against truth. But now the attacks are even escalating more and more. How do we speak? How do we deal with this? Second Timothy, follow me. I'm going to start reading chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Now, the, f the first several verses I've already read to you and I've preached on, but I'm now going to just get it in one grand context. Again, verses 14 to 26. 
Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. Now, you remember that emphasis on quarreling, not words. The Bible's all about words. The issue here is quarreling about those words, not discussing what the Bible has to say, understand. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God. Remember Paul speaking to Timothy? Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, em- excuse me, uh, worldly empty talk, because those who indulge in it will only become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, that is, honorable purposes, and some for ignoble, that is, dishonorable purposes. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument or an article for noble purposes made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do every good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Do not have anything to do with foolish and stupid, that is, uneducated arguments, because you know they produce quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Paul is challenging Timothy, be so very careful about those who think they're teaching the word of God, but truly are not. All they're doing is giving worldly, empty talk. They have wandered from the truth, he says. They're actually destroying the faith of some. Now, he gives two examples, and we looked at one in particular because it's not the first time we encountered his name. They're Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, Hymenaeus, he, he, he told Timothy in his previous letter that Hymenaeus, along with another gentleman by the name of Alexander, had been teaching heresy. They'd been teaching things that ran contrary to the gospel. Now, the example here is that the resurrection had already taken place, which basically means if there is no physical resurrection, guys, this is it. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's just this life. And first, <coughs> excuse me, first Corinthians 15, Paul speaks about those who deny the resurrection and says, what then is, what good, then, or what good is our faith? If we only have faith for this life, what, what good is it? Now, hopefully, I guess we would still live a good life, but with what hope? 
Why would we sacrifice so much if it's just for this life? Why deny self? Why crucify the flesh? Why say no to sin if it's only for this life that we have to live? And so he challenges the Corinthians, reject that kind of teaching. Hymenaeus himself believed that the resurrection had already taken place. That is a spiritual resurrection. Yes, maybe God has changed you. You've, you've come to this enlightenment of who God is and who Jesus is. And they would generally deny Jesus being God because God certainly would not take on flesh because they viewed the flesh, the physical body, as sinful. Therefore, you would not be raised with that sinful body. And so this then, though, undermines faith and our hope in eternal life. There's no heaven and there is certainly no hell. This undermines the gospel. Why should I follow Jesus? Why should I abandon my old beliefs and follow Christ? Because guess what? If I believe in Jesus, I could die. Why would I want to do this? Why would I want to be fully devoted to Jesus Christ? Why would I want to crucify the flesh? These types of questions can't be answered with what Hymenaeus was teaching. And the result was he was destroying the faith of many people. He says here that in spite of this, in spite of their aberrant teaching, he does not weigh in on whether they are truly followers of Christ or not. I want you to look closely at this. He says that the church, that is the foundation of the truth. And when I say foundation of the truth, that means that the foundation upholds the truth, supports it, that is that it declares it, and it lives it out. It seeks to make the gospel, the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, attractive in what it says and what it does. In this way, the church is the foundation that supports the truth. If the church fails, the word of God does not fail. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that. Paul is not saying that. But we, we support it. In, in, in 1 Timothy 3, he says we are the pillar and foundation or bulwark of the truth as well. So he's repeating himself, but he, he says that on this foundation are two inscriptions from God himself. It's kind of like they seal. It's like God's stamp of this is my people. Number one, the Lord and only the Lord truly knows those who are his. And number two, that if you declare yourself to be a follower of Jesus, then you must repent and turn away from wickedness. So Paul does not weigh in and saying, Hymenaeus, even though he's veered off course with regard to the gospel, he's not going to come out and say, this guy is, he, he's going to hell. He, 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 he leaves that in the Lord's hands. God knows his heart. But I tell you what, don't follow his teaching. He says, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you must turn away from your sin. You must turn away from wickedness. And many in this Gnostic type of teaching that Hymenaeus was promoting, they believe, well, if the body is evil, then what's wrong with me sinning? And I'm going to tell you this, that those who are, in wolf sheep, those who are wolves in sheep's clothing you will tell by their fruit. 
Paul does not step back and begin to fit. Yep, you're not going to heaven. You're not going. He says, that is, the Lord knows that. But I tell you what, don't follow their teaching and don't live the way they live. Don't do that. If what they teach is not in accordance with the word, don't follow it. If, what, if the way they're living is not in accordance with the word, don't emulate them. And so he's very firm on this point. So he now begins to segue, and this is where we pick up the message. He begins to segue into this idea of a large house. I want you to know he is still staying on track. As we talk about these articles in the house, he is still talking about this idea of wickedness, this idea of cutting straight the word of truth, that is handling it correctly and understanding truth and living truth. Those two things, speaking the truth and living the truth. That's what he is, he continues to talk about this. But he changes the metaphor from a foundation to that which stands on the foundation, a large house. Both of these metaphors, though, are still referring to the church. They're still referring to you and I. He's just switching metaphors right now. We're the foundation. Yes, we are as we're lifting up the truth. But we are now, as he says, we're a house. And I want you to imagine a house, a large house. And in that house, you're going to find articles in this house of gold, silver, wood, and clay. Some of these things can be used for noble or honorable purposes, but some of them can be used for dishonorable. Now, let me just be clear here. He is not saying that the gold and the silver are honorable and the wood and the clay are not. That is, that, that would draw us to a conclusion that there are some people in the house of God that are just dishonorable. No, this is what he is saying. Gold, silver, whether articles are made of gold, silver, wood, or clay, they are all, they all should be used for honorable purposes. If you take a golden goblet and you serve it to your guest of honor, that is an honorable thing to do. You are showing preference to him and you are honoring your guest of honor by allowing him to use this gold goblet. However, you could fill that gold goblet over and over again with alcohol and get drunk. And now you're using it for dishonorable purposes. He's not saying that those in the body of Christ who are the gold instruments or vessels are in somehow were, are, are more valuable than those who are wood or clay. Can I ask you, what is a Ming vase made of? It's made of clay. Now, two certain types of clay mixed together to create a ceramic, so it's a certain type of ceramic, and all ceramics are clay. So a Ming vase is a clay vessel, but it's worth thousands, if not millions of dollars. So are we going to say that gold is worth more? No, that's not his purpose. It's not about value here. It's about your purpose in each of these things. There are some wooden, phenomenally well-crafted items in houses that are worth far more than certain items made of gold or silver. If you take a piece of canvas, maybe worth a few dollars, you can vastly increase that piece of canvas with a well-known artist's oil painting. 
And now it's worth millions instead of just a few dollars. You see my point. The question then is, what are you doing with these vessels? And he says, get rid of the ignoble or get rid of the dishonorable purposes and only allow those purposes that are honorable, those purposes that truly honor Christ. So the challenge is to Timothy, and of course those that he's teaching, be a vessel unto honor, be sanctified, be suitable for the master of the house. That master is God himself and be prepared for every good work. This is kind of a little reminiscent if you were to go over to the next chapter, verse 17. He's talking about all scripture being God-breathed and he says, verse 17, so that the man of God may be what? Fully equipped for every good work. If you want to be prepared for the master church, you have got to be a man or a woman of the word. You have got to learn how to cut straight or handle the word of truth. You have got to be able to be like that tree planted by streams of water. That person, he says in the previous verses, the one who just loves and meditates on the law of God day and night. This is the type of people that we must be, and especially in our culture today, in which truth is either being twisted or erased. People are defining for themselves what truth is. They are the ones who stand in judgment over God's word, saying, this looks good and this looks good, but the idea of hell, no, we're going to get rid of that one. The idea of, of homosexuality being sin, nope, we're going to twist that here and there. We're going to make it say what we want it to say. And Man stands in judgment over the word of God, and may I just add, thereby making himself God. We interpret the word. We don't make the word say what we want it to say. We allow the word to speak to us. And a fair interpretation, a fair interpretation of the word, not filled with bias, not filled with cultural empty talk, but allowing the word to simply say what it clearly means. And I'm going to tell you this. There may be certain passages that are difficult to understand. The gospel is not. We do not equivocate on the doctrine of Jesus' deity. We don't. We don't compromise on it. There are some sects out there that say Jesus can't be. How could God, be the infinite God, become finite man? That is an that's illogical, that can't be. Well, I tell you what, in your mind, and in my mind, yeah, that's, that's hard. But the Bible says that he is. Because let me just say this, that if Jesus is not God, how dare we worship him, that's idolatry, and how dare someone who is not God tell me that if I believe in him, I'll have eternal life. That if I give my life completely to him, for some reason, that's the requirement. I, I'm sorry, Jesus, I do that only with God because to do that with anyone other than God is idolatry. If you do that with money and you elevate money and the value of money and give your life to it, that's idolatry. If Jesus is not God and he asks you to give your life to him, see, that's idolatry. Do you see the importance of Jesus being God strikes at the very heart of the gospel? So let me just say this again. The gospel is absolutely clear, regardless of what denomination you, you adhere to, it is clear. 
even with regard to Roman Catholics, if they veer off course, and let me just say I've met plenty of them that do not, regardless of what general Catholicism teaches, and there's actually debate about that, then let me just say there are plenty of Roman Catholics that choose not to worship Mary, that choose to have faith in Christ alone, and they are true believers, from what I can tell. I have close friends who are this, but we must not listen and follow the teachings of this world. We can't do that. And Hymenaeus was just simply speaking worldly empty talk. Don't follow that. Follow the word of God. So be a vessel unto honor, be sanctified, be suitable for the master of the house, be prepared for every good work. And then he goes on and he says this, flee the evil desires of youth. Now, I'm not going to say that he's not referring to lusts, that is sexual desires that are not controlled. He is in the sense that this is probably one of Hymenaeus' teachings. It was with Gnosticism. If the flesh is evil, it's, not, it's, it's sinful, then what's wrong with indulging in it? It's only my body. The real me is my spirit. So if my body engages in sexual immorality, it's not sin. That was the reasoning of many Gnostics. Very possibly the reasoning of Hymenaeus. And let me just say, though... <laughs> excuse me, Christians in our day may not follow that line of reasoning. They certainly have no problem with fornication. Don't follow that. Flee youthful lusts. Flee it. Have nothing to do with that. Be self-controlled. Be a vessel, gold, silver, wood, clay, porcelain, ming vase, unto honor. Don't be used. Do not allow the devil to use you unto dishonor. Don't engage in alcoholism. Don't get drunk. Don't engage in sexual immorality. Don't engage in lying. The world writes it off. Oh, that's just a little lie. It's not a big deal. It's okay to steal some of these, you know, these things over. No, I would never steal money from a bank, but... I'll steal this and this and this if my boss isn't looking. After all, I mean, come on, he represents a big company. They can afford to lose some items if I need it. And that's how people, that's how Christians rationalize. You know, it, it doesn't matter whether it's a big company or a small company, stealing is wrong. So flee youthful lusts, he says. Let me just suggest, though, that he is referring to more, to more than just sexual lusts. He is referring to desires within the youth, okay? That is immature desires. That is a, like a Christian who has brought a lot of baggage when he got saved from the world and he's sorting through it and he's trying to understand what to get rid of and what, and what not to. You find this in almost every young Christian just wrestling and, and searching his heart and trying to understand what the word of God is saying. Oh, abortion is wrong? Wow, I grew up thinking it's all right. Well, what about a woman's rights? And you have to walk them through what scripture has to say concerning life, when it begins, its sanctity, the fact that we're made in the image of God. 
and that we preserve that life, we dare not take it. And so someone who is new to the faith, they, they're wrestling with some of They're reorienting the way that they think. They're going to bring in some baggage. And, and I think as we, <coughs> excuse me, as we look at the rest of this paragraph, we're going to see some of that emerge. And this is where the rubber's going to meet the road. How then do we speak to those who oppose us? So we flee the evil desires of youth and we pursue. This word pursue is intentional. That that is what the word pursue means. It doesn't just mean follow. It means follow after. Be intentional. It's, It's not a casual walk. It's a pursuit. That is how we use the word pursue. I just want to bring that to your attention because this is something that we decide in our heart and that we're given to it and we're to follow righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Let me just say that all four of those have to do with how we get along with others, including the world. Righteousness. Don't compromise on righteousness. Lift your banner high. This is what I stand for. This is what I live for. This is who I am in Christ. This is my life. This is what's right and this is what's wrong. We don't compromise on that. How we talk about it's going to be important, but don't allow the world to press you into its mold to conform you into anything other than the image of Christ. Don't let them do that. So follow righteousness. Follow faith. And by faith then, even though you're attacked, you do not give up the faith. Even though you listen to someone who's speaking something contrary to the truth, don't follow them. Don't embrace what they're teaching. Be a good steward of the word. Learn how to handle, cut straight, the word of God. Each of us, not just your pastor, there's going to become a time in which I'm not going to be on the other end of that phone and you're going to be talking with someone who is going to lead you astray and just these little, oh, they sound so good, so good, and by the time they're done, they come to the conclusion that is completely contrary to what you believe. Are you going to embrace them? You can't call me. You can't call your best friend who may be solid in the word. I'm going to challenge you. You be solid in the word. You stand in the word. A regular diet of the word. Church, truth is being so compromised and the church is just being sucked right into it. They're listening to all this worldly, cultural, empty talk and they're buying into it. I fear for the church in our day that we are compromising. But on the other hand, I would say that there is something going on in the church that is putting its foot down and saying, absolutely not. And how they're doing it, though, is so important. How you do it is so important. I'm going to get to that in the how in just a moment here. So pursue righteousness, pursue faith. Don't abandon the faith. Don't let these teachings, as what happened with Hymenaeus, shipwreck your faith. Don't let it, don't let that, don't let it destroy your faith. Also, he says, pursue love. When, he says to Timothy, win people like Hymenaeus to the truth with love. Don't quarrel. And, and I'm going to get to it in just a moment. There's a reason why the, it seems like there's a little button in most of us that we push that says quarrel, fight back. Get defensive. 
we rationalize it, but we go overboard many times and we don't end up representing Christ well. But we need to speak with love, not argumentation. You see, it's love that softens hearts, not irate rantings. And then peace, follow, pursue peace, even with those, and especially with those who are antagonistic with us. And then he says, while you're doing these four things, make sure you're doing it with others who are following Christ with a pure heart. It's interesting. I wish that, Tim, that Paul could have said to Timothy, pursue these things with other Christians. But he had to get very specific, didn't he? He didn't just say with other Christians. He said, no, with those who, what? With those, along with those who call on the Lord, no period, who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Even people in Paul's day were getting sucked in to these teachings that were off course. And it wasn't just leading them to think wrongly. Remember what I said last, last week? What you believe truly affects how you will live. And if you're veering off course from truth, you're eventually going to see that in the way you live. It's going to show up. So pursue these things with those who call in the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. Unfortunately, that's not everyone who calls himself a Christian. And I'm not doubting those people's salvations because truly born-again Christians, there are still so many who are not doing this. And they're looking at the world and they're so enthralled by it, they get caught up in it. They're just believing the stuff of the world, but living it too. All I have to say is the Lord knows those who are his. And if you call on the name of the Lord, you, we are called to flee and turn away from wickedness. He goes on to say, and he says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid, that is, uneducated arguments. Learn to recognize them. How are you going to learn to recognize error by knowing the truth? And if we can't know the truth, if we're not spending time in the truth, then we're going to get duped. My friends, you're going to get duped if you are not reading and studying the Word. And let me just say this, that we don't just study the Word so that we can know it. We study the Word so we'll be like that tree planted by the streams of water, so that when Hurricane Ian's come by, we're not going to be uprooted like that tree next door to us and fall down. Instead, we're going to be rooted with roots sinking deep into the earth, not rotted by worldly empty talk, as I'm sure many of the roots of that tree were. I mean, that's a huge tree. Did you see it? The, the, the root structure is, is wide, but I'm sure many of the roots over time have rotted. Church, don't let that happen to you. Be like that tree planted by streams of water, constantly nourished. Your leaf will not wither. Whatever you do will prosper. You'll produce fruit in proper season. Only for those who are being in the word. So I've emphasized that enough for us. Church, let's be men and women of the word. 
We don't do it just to know it, though we do need to know the word. We do it so that it impacts us. It changes us. What did Jesus say in John 8? He says, they'll know the truth and the truth will set them free. He's not saying you'll tell the truth and by telling the truth, oh, got that one off my chest. I feel so much better about myself. I feel so free. He's not talking about that. He's talking about knowing the truth so the truth will know you, apprehend you, and change you. That's why we're in the word regularly. Pastor Mike needs regular changing from the word of God. I do. And, and I have a sneaky suspicion that all of us probably need that too. Just a hunch. I want to talk about something now. It is so easy for us when someone starts speaking to us about something that we disagree with. I want to take it beyond the political. Hopefully your politics are rooted in Scripture. There are some things, though, that just Scripture just does not deal with. And as humble Christians, we have to recognize this. But there is plenty that truly is rooted in the Word of God. How do we respond to people? And, and I'm not talking about politics here. I am truly talking about, then, the Word of God. And if I am talking about politics, it's your politics that are rooted in the word. How do we deal with these people? How do we respond? Let me just say this. Anger will almost always beget anger. Proverbs 26, 4 through 5. Proverbs 26, verses 4 through 5 says this, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. Very next verse, huh? Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. What? I, I hardly think that two verses right next door to each other, are going to contradict each other. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Next verse, answer a fool according to his folly. We must understand what does it mean, according to his folly, because each verse, that changes. Answer a fool, do not answer a fool according to his folly, means the way he is talking is folly. It's foolishness. Many times, the idea of a fool in Proverbs is not just someone who speaks garbage, but they live it. Okay? He says, that person who's a fool and is talking foolishness, he says, don't be like them. They're talking their foolishness and they're being arrogant and they're looking down on people. And, and I love to read certain types of books in the area of apologetics and just listening to what the world says about Christianity. And I'll be honest with you, it gets me angry. But they talk foolishness. And not just words that are foolish, but how, they're, how arrogantly they talk. Christians are this and are that, and they're stupid, they're uneducated. You know, they reject science, they reject, you know, just common sense. And, and they speak arrogantly. Hey, they're the fool. Don't talk to them in the very way they talked with you, because if you do, you're going to be just like them. And that's his point in the first one, in verse 4. But then he says, hey, 
answer a fool according to his folly. That is, according to his reasoning. Speak to that. Speak to what he claims to be truth. Don't talk the way he does according to his folly, but speak to his folly. Speak truth because you don't want him thinking that he must be right. And the proverb says, or he will be wise in his own eyes. However, can I just say this? Don't make it your goal to take him down a peg or two. Don't do that. You know, in my in college, I remember so many times in which a professor would be speaking, and I would just want to stand up and say something that would humiliate him because he was speaking so arrogantly. Wow. And afterwards, I would think, where did that come from? I get it. I want to defend the truth, but why would I want to offend someone? Why would I want to speak the very way that they spoke? And here's what I concluded. Church, there was an insecurity in me. If, if you're hearing garbage and you want the record set straight, good for you. There should be something, an anger that rises up within you, it within you. However, should that anger want to humiliate? Of course not. Should anger want us to run someone over and kill them? Absolutely not. Should we want to in some way want to put them down? You know? Let me just get on your level and show you what it's like. No, of course not. All of this, no. How do we defend the truth and do it well? Jesus said, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, when Jesus was dying on the cross, he was suffering for our sins. He said when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In other words, there were no insecurities in Jesus for his enemies to push that button. Have you ever had your buttons pushed? First of all, let me just, insecurity. Insecurity means that I, my sense of personal value and worth and who I am is rooted in something other than God's view of me. God's declaration that he loves me and I am valuable. So if I place that in a friend and my friend speaks negatively about me, his opinion about me impacts me. And I want to get defensive. I feel attacked, so I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to push back. Jesus had no desire to push back. Why? Why didn't Jesus want to defend himself in the view against those who rejected him? That, that's their personal opinion, which meant absolutely nothing to him. I mean, their hearts did, don't get me wrong, but their opinions about him, so? Just think of some beautiful woman or beautiful guy in our generation, someone walking up to them and say, man, you are like so ugly. Oh my goodness, I, when I look at you, I just get the heaves. I seriously doubt that most of those people who are so attractive would, oh my goodness, I just feel so hurt and attacked and want to attack them back. They, they would probably just laugh. 
<laughs> okay, because they've had like a thousand or maybe hundreds of thousands of people emailing, you know, tweeting how much, how beautiful, how attractive they are, and oh my goodness, I even dream about you, and yada, yada, you know how the world fangirls, and is there a fan guy word in it? Fangirl, anyway, you know, you know how the world does. And I seriously doubt that that movie star, whoever, that famous person who's extremely attractive, they're, they're probably not going to think twice about it. <laughs> so what? Because they're so convinced that what this person said is just not true, or at least just their opinion. And okay, so what? I don't care about their opinion. Can you say that when people verbally attack you? That it's their opinion. Well, they're entitled to their opinion, so? Or do you walk away thinking about what it would be like to punch them in the face? Hmm? Come on. Jesus did not have those desires. Why? I need to make this clear. Because he was so firmly set in the Father's love. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Can you listen to that, church? And can you receive that truth? Can you truly grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love that Christ has for you? Can you begin to grasp that? Because when you do, it doesn't matter what the world says about you. That's just their opinion. They rejected Jesus. They crucified him. But he refused to retaliate. He refused to get defensive. See, Jesus didn't have that button of insecurity. He was firmly rooted in the Father's love. Pastor Mike still has that button. I would venture to say most of us do. I hope mine is a whole lot smaller than when I was a teenager. When I was a teenager, it was like, it was huge. When I was a little kid, it was super huge. People would say something negatively about me, and I would be in a fist fight with them. I would be punching them, in the face even, and I would be sent to the principal's office. He and I were on a first-name basis. My coffee mug was in his office. Okay, I'm just kidding. But the truth is, I was sent to the principal's office so frequently because I was so insecure, and I was constantly fighting, and God had to set me free from that. And so I, I, I hope... I truly believe that that button that's insecure, that when people would touch it, I would react, has gotten smaller and smaller. I wish it were totally gone today, church. I just know that it's not. But how big is your insecurity button? So that when someone speaks against you, you want to you get in their face. You want to you retaliate. You want to put them in their place. No, nope. because the servant of God does not quarrel. As a matter of fact... It says that he is kind, he's able to teach, and he's not resentful. That is, he's forbearing in the face of being wronged. That's what that word, not resentful, means. When someone speaks wrongly against you, there's not this desire to retaliate. It's just not there. In fact, we gently instruct. And the reason why we do this, church, and I'm just going to sum up, because I'm going to be touching on these couple of verses next week. When we gently instruct, when we're pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace, even with the world, they feel loved on. When we attack, a gentle answer stirs up anger. But anger begets anger. A harsh word stirs up anger. So don't engage in harsh words. A gentle answer. When we're able to do this, it is absolutely amazing 
that the truth that we speak coupled with the love that we're speaking it with and the actions that we're communicating as well. The Spirit of God seems to be able to take those truths and incisively plant them in someone's heart so much easier. I want to just conclude with this story. There was a young man, 17 years of age, and you, you find it in the arrival kit. Some of you, many of you have gone through the arrival kit. The story's from there. 17-year-old man in Malaysia, he gets converted, and his father, who worships the monkey god, kicks him out of his house. He says, I want to have nothing to do with you. Kicks him out of the house, and the son sleeps on the front step of that house. The next morning, he wakes up, and... In Oriental custom, it is to have your shoes on the outside so that you take off your shoes and then go in the house. He takes those shoes and he begins to polish and shine them. The next day, he is polishing and waxing and shining and cleaning his father's car. He does this for an entire week. And his father observes this, that he had just kicked his son out with hateful words, kicked him out of his house. How dare you follow Jesus instead of what I believe in? By the end of that week, the father was so impacted with his loving response to his opposition, the father's opposition, it's, the story says that the father just wept. And he listened to his son. And he embraced the truth of the gospel. Because the son made a choice. I will not retaliate. I will love my dad. I will not speak against his anger as wrong as what he is saying is I'm not going to do that I'm going to love him and I'm just going to speak truth church can we do that in this visceral culture that we live in that opposes Christianity constantly can we respond with truth in love that's what Paul is calling us to and if, there, if your insecurities, if, if there is, your defensiveness gets riled up easily, cry out to God and embrace his love. Embrace the truth of the very fact that he loves you with an infinite love and therefore has placed high value on you. So much so that he died for you. Amen, church?